Welcome. When your child experiences something life-threatening and you're not there to intervene or stop it, a parent must also decide how to respond or react. I use those two terms because although they're similar, they're very different and important in ways which we'll be looking at today, responding and reacting. Welcome, I'm Elaine Cross, and this is the Living Brightly with Elaine Cross podcast, where we discuss current events from a biblical perspective with the idea that you too can let your light shine, that your light can shine so bright others will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Thanks for joining me. Today, we're going to talk about the difference between reacting and responding. And one of the biggest issues of the moment is gun violence. But it's not just gun violence that we're going to talk about, although that is the core issue. Have you ever been helpless watching or witnessing a tragic event? When my son was two, we were outside in the front yard playing with his siblings. They were on and off the porch, that kind of thing, and having lots of fun, doing lots of different things. And as I walked up on the porch to check on my son, I realized he was inside a small toy uh, shopping cart. This one was by a brand name, and it's all plastic and good quality, but it's not really designed to be climbed inside of. And he was trying to climb out. (laughs) I don't know how he got in, but I know how he got out and it wasn't pretty. As I was yelling and he was climbing, there was no way I could reach him in time before the wheels gave way, the shopping cart tilted and he face planted on a table that we had put on the front porch. Now, the interesting thing is we had moved that table to the front porch because it was a coffee table and the edges were too sharp. And we were afraid someone was going to get hurt. Well, someone did. That someone was my two-year-old son. So I, by the time I got to him, he was already on the floor crying. I picked him up. Blood was gushing. And this was just the first of three sets of stitches this son had, along with a broken arm, a hook in his back, and a trip to the ER after he crashed into a moving car. Yes, he did the crashing, not the car. (laughs) Accidents happen so fast. And then you can take a deep breath and figure out how to respond. Now, when I had to take him to the emergency room to get stitches put in his lip because he had fallen on the table, I had three other children in tow. So that in and of itself was another experience. Raising kids is always a moment of unknown. There's always this something could happen. Generally, things go along with no issues, no major problems. But those everyday events Prepare parents to be ready for when children do something that becomes tragic. Reacting is instantaneous. You immediately respond because it seems like a life and death situation. And what you're actually doing can change the outcome. You react out of impulse in in a split second idea. 
A father snatches a running child before they enter the street as a car goes whizzing past. The child was focused on getting their ball. The father was noticing the oncoming traffic and the child not going to make a good combination. Everybody's a little shaken. Adrenaline is still kind of dissipating, but it's an adrenaline-rich immediate reaction to imminent danger. Something bad is going to happen and somebody has to stop it right now. Responses are more thought-provoking. They're decisions made from a position of space and time to formulate the next steps. Uh, When a mother gets a phone call from the voice of an older gentleman who identifies himself as a police officer, your son was in a car accident. He's okay, but he's being transported to the hospital to be checked out. You can meet him there. Listening to Officer Ortega, the mother ascertains the details of the situation, what happened for the accident, thanks the officer, hangs up, makes all the necessary arrangements and plans, and heads to the hospital. That is the next step. Raising children is a wonderful and stressful adventure. Children hurt themselves, and they hurt each other. And yet, we're usually surprised when something happens. We try to prepare our kids for the unexpected to try and minimize worst-case scenarios. In my house, every winter, my husband goes to a parking lot somewhere with the first or second snowfall, does a lot of donuts. Now, it's fun. <laughs> What's not fun? Making a bunch of donuts in an abandoned parking lot because it's it's in a shopping center where there's lots of open space. When the children started driving, this became an opportunity to teach them, this is how your car responds in the snow. This is how you can turn out of a, a spin. This is how you can slow down. That teaching and training, they learn that slamming on the brakes does not stop a sliding car. It only makes it keep sliding. <laughs> There's a time for pumping the brakes or turning the wheel into the turn and different things you can do to come out of what could be a very dangerous situation if you were on the road in an instantaneous accident. We call that prevention. Prevention is the driving force to prohibit something or some kind of accident from being as deadly as it could be. Every situation is unique and individuals respond or react in very different ways, depending on their life experiences. Most of us want really bad life-threatening experiences to be prevented. Just prevent them. Don't let them happen at all. But the reality is you can't prevent everything. You can't prevent all automobile accidents. I did some research and the year that we had the most deaths resulting from an automobile crash or accident was in 1937. And you think, wow, that was, that was a long time ago and there weren't a lot of cars on the roads. In fact, there weren't a lot of roads at all. That accounted for 37,819 deaths. The population, 130 million people. That's a lot of people out of 130 million. Almost 38,000 people died 
in car accidents. Things didn't really change until 1968. In 1967, the federal government decided every car that is manufactured in the United States has to have seatbelts in every seat in the car. Okay, they couldn't legalize or mandate that everybody wear the seatbelt, but they could certainly mandate that every car had a seatbelt for every seat. Accidents did go down a little bit following that law. As a matter of fact, in 1968, there were 52,000 deaths, over 200 million people in the country at that time. So that makes sense that it was more deaths, but it was a lesser percentage. And then from that point on, deaths in car accidents declined. In 1985 was the first year after the first state law requiring seatbelts. And things really started to decline. And we compare automobile deaths to gun violence a lot. But in 2019, it was still 36,000 people were killed in car accidents. We also were up to 330 million people. And the deaths was less than in 1937 at just 36,000. That's a huge improvement. The federal government did not ban cars. But what the federal government did was they mandated that all seatbelts or all seats in cars had seatbelts. Now, every state has its own version of a seatbelt law. The state with probably the least amount of a seatbelt law is New Hampshire, and they have a seatbelt requirement for anybody 17 and under, but there's no requirement for an adult. I don't know what the death rate is in New New Hampshire compared to other states of similar size or similar, similar population, but I can look at the amount of deaths from automobile accidents has decreased significantly since the the federal government instituted the seat belts for every seat in the car law. Of course, it took several years for every car to have that because they didn't have to retrofit cars that were already on the road. They only had to to make every new car have a seat belt for every seat. When we think of personal terrorizing situations like a child running into the the street and furiously running after them or getting a phone call that your child has had an accident and you don't know how healthy they are or you know how injured they are or you know your your adrenaline pumps you you get this rush of energy to try and fix and protect and make things right but this also happens on a grand scale right September 11th, terror struck the United States. Towering skyscrapers were struck intentionally once and then twice. Smoke was billowing, flames were erupting, the ground rumbled from the impact. Curiosity and panic rippled through people, not only right there in the city, but far away as the newscast started showing images over and over and over again. Desperate attempts to try and contact loved ones became really burdensome for the phone companies because the phone lines were just inundated with calls. But of course, there was a lot of destruction in New York. 
some travelers didn't even realize they were caught up in the the extent of this when they knew that somebody had taken over their airplane but didn't really know what was happening on the ground. Well, some of the men called home and the wives told them what was happening. As they hear these frantic descriptions of what's happening to the buildings, this awareness seemed to set in and it dispelled the erratic, panic, reactionary thoughts. And it gave them a moment to respond, to think, to process. Something must be done. Someone must do something. Who is that someone? And those someones were passengers on Flight 93. They formulated a plan that not most of us would want to undertake. They knew they were going to die. So they decided if they were going to die, they were going to die in a way that didn't kill a bunch of other people as well. That is incredible that you would come to a a place of calm and reason and response. We're not going to react out of fear and people screaming and people freaking out all over you and, and people trying to make you be quiet. They just quietly planned and executed a very heroic response to a very terrifying situation. Following 9-11, the the country was full of reacting and responding. There were immediate reactions, right? They shut down all the airports. All airplanes were grounded. Boom, immediately. After that, then, there was some responding. Congress made some serious security changes for the United States. And in the heat of the moment, most people cheered them. Now, there were some people who questioned either their effectiveness or their their usefulness. There really wasn't anybody who stood in the way. They agreed for the American use of military force, which was not a declaration of war because it was a war on terror. They didn't know who the enemy really was, and they didn't want to say it was a particular country. The American use of military force is still in operation, even though they have pulled out of Afghanistan and left all of the Middle East. So I'm not sure what or how that's being used. They passed the Patriot Act, and it was to surveillance and investigate foreign and domestic threats. It had a sunshine clause, so it ended, but it has been repeatedly renewed. And there are a lot of people at this point who are saying, it probably should go away. You probably shouldn't keep renewing it because spying on U.S. citizens has always been a huge anti-American idea. That's something that totalitarian states, communist states, socialist states do. It is not something that the United States government does. It's not acceptable by the United States citizens. They also created the Department of Homeland Security. They pulled in 22 different agencies, including the CIA and the Coast Guard. They created Gitmo, which was an offshore 
prison to hold people because once they came into American soil, they had to follow American laws. And of course, this also instituted the TSA. Now, the TSA was around, but it, it wasn't around like it was before 9-11. After 9-11, it was you know, to take off your shoes, and now you have to be scanned. And there's so many processes and protocols to get on an airplane that it's a huge behemoth of an organization. And that's part of the Transportation Security Administration has 47,000 employees just working in the TSA, just working in airports. So those are the, the screeners, and those are also the air marshals and other employees to make sure our airplanes are safe. And then, of course, they created the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, ICE. Now, ICE was designed to find out who's coming in and overstaying their stay because they found out that a lot of these terrorists came under like a six-month visa or something, and that's never left. They just stayed here, and they were admitted into schooling, and a lot of them went to pilot training, learning how to fly an airplane, and use that to fly the jets into their target buildings, the World Trade Centers and the Pentagon, and they believe Flight 93 was headed toward the White House or the Capitol. All of these were dramatic and expensive plans. They were responses to this war with this enemy that was not easily identified. Now, this war played out on social media. It was reported over blazing fast internet. So when things went sideways anywhere, it became a very moral, outrageous situation. 20 years later, here we are. We can look back in judgment. We can look back in concern. But is anybody really looking back? Is anybody really questioning or modifying or justifying some of the responses to terror or modifying some of these new organizations, these new federal agencies that are designed to control and monitor citizens? Like some of the regulations, like some of the TSA things have been loosened but none of them have really been eliminated. And, and a lot of it is to do with the fact that our society is so divided politically. Currently, they are working to basically criminalize people who support Donald Trump. You can be a Republican, but if you're a Republican that supports Donald Trump, then you must be fill in the blank. And there's a serious danger to that, whether you support Donald Trump or not. That's just a dangerous precedent. Can governments prevent evil? And I think that is part of the discussion that's being missed, is that there is true evil in the world. And I have heard different podcasters, different news people kind of admit that at this point, they have to say there is just plain evil. And that is hard for them to admit because we have been told that that is religion. That's, that's a religious idea that needs to be separate. Well, here at Living Brightly, we talk about religion in the, in the space of life. And there is evil out there. And evil feeds off of power and positions of power. 
You know, we live in a broken world full of broken people who are self-serving individuals. If you think back in the 1920s, the U.S. government tried to outlaw liquor. Didn't go so well. It's called prohibition. And the only thing they managed to do as a federal government was solidify some mobster organizations, which led to the, to the creation of automobile racing as a sport. So in case you missed it, the history of NASCAR runs through the moonshine runners in the southeast, the hill country, because they would produce the alcohol and then they had to try to get it to the city centers. The mobsters helped and police that were bought or whatever uh, that they could get on the payroll helped because people still had access to alcohol. The one thing older than our government, than any government on the face of the earth, is evil. The only thing that will outlive every government and evil is Jesus Christ and his followers. So this isn't to say that government politicians are not necessary. Christians should not encourage or enable evil, but we cannot eliminate it either. We have to be aware of this. The reality is we live in a world that is both physical and spiritual, and the physical part of it is people. People are not our enemy. Evil is our enemy, but people who do not serve God don't really understand what is influencing them or how it is influencing them. Governments and politicians react to situations and they react to their constituents who cry out against certain situations. Christians must respond. Christians must help to facilitate a balance response when those people in a position of authority are reacting or are reacting with a short lens. Christians can take a a big picture view of things. And this is something that is sorely needed in society in general today. When unbelievers react out of fear and panic and self-preservation, they desperately need us believers who are empowered by God through the Holy Spirit to remain calm and offer responses that are thoughtful, prayerful, and insightful as to what is a good path forward. Christians, believers, are here because we are to push back against the evil and to push back against the chaos that wants to overtake society and the world as a whole. So when we're going to push back against evil, one of the things we want to bolster and hold up is truth and freedom, liberty. If you have not listened to the first eight podcasts, the Living Brightly series, I suggest that you at some point listen to those because they'll give you a foundation for some of these terms that I may use like liberty and believer, honor and rest. And these are core tenets to living a bright life. We have to honor the government. We have to honor everyone, each individual person. It does not mean though that we allow them to spread chaos and to allow evil to flourish. That's why it is important for us to be not only aware of what's going on in the world, but aware of how we should respond to it. One of the things that continues to come up in contemporary culture 
is this distortion of language. And I don't have a lot of time to get into that today on this podcast, but I do want to mention it briefly. Words do change in meaning as time goes by. It's a common occurrence. Words get redefined based on how they're used or situations that happen. But generally, it's a very slow, gradual process. Currently, there are words that are being forced into a new definition without everybody kind of understanding what's happening because it's happening so fast. And what we have is groups of people who think words mean specific things who are talking over each other because they're not talking to each other because they're talking about a subject with two different definitions of a word. So word use is very important. And that's just something I want you to be aware of. And I want you to consider as you listen to news reports or talking heads. And those talking heads can be anywhere from the pulpit to the schoolhouse and everywhere in between, which includes the halls of government. So just be aware that Some words are being redefined or used in a different way to mean a different thing than what you may expect it to mean. So we've been talking about responding and reacting and what that means as a parent and what that means as an adult. We react out of fear and instantaneous response. We respond by thinking about a problem and coming up with a long-term solution. I want to thank somebody today who has responded to this podcast and Nate B. from Brimfield, Ohio has supported this podcast as a producer in helping make it possible. You see, this is a value for value podcast. And if you get value from it, I would ask you to head on over to ElaineCross.com. That's E-L-A-Y-N-E cross as in Jesus died on the cross dot com and donate. Any amount, whatever value you find that you have received from listening to these podcasts. And as you help me, I help you. And I take the time and do the research and pull it all together and align it with biblical principles so that you can live brightly. Now let's continue. So we have these terror attacks. We have personal intimate moments of terror when somebody close to us is in a situation of danger. And we have these corporate, meaning community-wide moments of terror. Of course, recently, as I mentioned before, one of the those big things is mass shootings and school shootings in particular. And I have seen this change in discussion and how newscasters discuss mass shootings First of all, they've, they've kind of redefined what a mass shooting is. A mass shooting is four or more people, which sounds like a lot, and yet can also easily describe a angry, delusional domestic violence situation where one person kills the spouse and two of the kids and then turns the gun on themselves. That's four people. That's not really what I would consider a mass shooting. That is a tragic domestic violence shooting. Should it be stopped? Absolutely. Can you stop all those? You can't. Spouses, wives in particular, have been abused by their husbands for as long back as as they've they've had a memory. They've had a record of it. Dinah, who was the daughter of 
Israel with the 12 sons was raped by the prince of another community. And they called it rape. They knew it was rape. So it wasn't the first time it had happened to someone. Just to be clear, this is not new. This is, this is evil. Evil is in the world. Evil has been in the world for as long as humans have been more than two people. So when we talk about mass shootings, it kind of goes back to the going postal, which was when a post office employee would bring a gun into the workspace and shoot several of his co-employees, people that actually worked in the post office. That's where the term going postal came from. There were several of those, and you haven't really heard of those for a long, long time. But right now, the most distressing is the school shootings. And this is quite a shift in society. This is something rather new. The first time I had ever heard of some kind of event like this happening in a school was in Russia. And it may have been Ukraine. I think it was part of the USSR at the time, or if it wasn't, it was, I think it was Ukraine. Anyway, armed assailants went into the school, held like 120 kids captive for several days, treated them like hostages. I don't remember the details of how it ended, but that was the first time I had heard of schools being a target. In the United States, the first school shooting happened in Columbine. And that changed a lot of things. There was a lot of responses to Columbine and how police respond and how it gets reported. I don't even know if the police were reported before it was over. But again, these things happen very quickly. So that's not unheard of. This was before cell phones were as popular as they are now. Certainly before there was any kind of video ability like there is now. But the fact that we are 20 years out, Columbine happened. April of 1999, so more than 20 years ago, was when the Columbine shooting happened and they killed 13 people and wounded more than 20 others. That is a mass shooting. But it's been over 20 years and still we have shootings happening in schools in the United States. Now that is distressing on many levels, extremely distressing. And it makes you wonder if the people in a position of power who can write and pass laws really care about the students as much as they care about the gun. Because following one of these issues, they talk about the tragedy of the loss of life, and yet they focus on the gun, the instrument used to take that life. Now, you and I, who live brightly, know it's not an inanimate object that took life. Cain killed Abel with a rock, a stick. People will find a way to kill other people, no matter what is available or is not available. Yes, a gun can kill several people at one time, so can many other things. 
What I don't see is a balanced response. What I see is a reaction. And that reaction almost always involves taking away your liberties. In the United States, we have a right to own and bear arms. So let's start there first. The Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, even if you look at the Wikipedia page for the Second Amendment, you're going to see a lot of discussion about the fact that this was about protecting the individual. This is not about hunting and this is not about shooting, though those are certainly ways that people use guns. The Second Amendment is really about keeping the federal government in check. The idea was that people within the states who owned their own guns could A, defend their own person and property. Property was an issue. Now, I applaud the framers of the Constitution who did not want to include property in the preamble, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was life, liberty, and property. And yet there were so many people who were vehemently against slavery and slaves were considered chattel. They were considered property. They did not want to reinforce or codify slavery by saying that people had a right to life, liberty, and property when that property could be the life and liberty of another human. So I applaud them. But in the process, there hasn't been anything or much, I don't think there's anything that guarantees you your property because the government comes and takes it under eminent domain all the time. And that's an issue for another podcast. And I will probably talk about it. (laughs) The Second Amendment was not about hunting and it was not about shooting as a sport. The Second Amendment was about self-defense. And the Second Amendment was also about creating militias where if they had enough individual citizens who had guns and had the ability to shoot those guns, they could be rallied together to defend the state from the federal government. Because there was a lot of concern about the federal government rolling over and taking the power away from the individual states and thus the individual person. There was some debate because France was having a revolution in Well, France is France. France has had several revolutions over the years. (laughs) They call them revolutions, but basically they're civil wars. They're wars within their country about who and how the government is going to operate, who's going to run the government, how the government's going to be set up, how it's going to function. Okay, those are revolutions. Those are civil wars. Those wars between citizens. And they didn't necessarily want a lot of wars between the states or amongst the states or the states against the federal government, which is why they quickly went from their original setup. The legislature was unbalanced, so they divided it with an upper house and a lower house, which basically just means the house is elected every two years and the Senate is elected every six years. So the house members are theoretically closer to the individual uh, voter and the Senate is more of a big picture, long-term position, and they, they divided those powers. But that's a separate discussion. So when you look at the Second Amendment, this Second Amendment was all about owning guns that could be used as part of a militia. 
So when you hear newscasts and news reports talking about assault rifles, first off, there's no such thing as an assault rifle. Any gun can assault someone, as can a brick or a bat or a hammer. Anything, you can use just about anything to assault someone. So assault rifle is a made-up term that ignorant people in media or Congress created because there's a rifle called AR. AR does not stand for assault rifle. It is the maker of the gun. So let's just leave it at that. And the whole point of the Second Amendment was not just to have a certain type of gun. If anything, it was especially weapons of warfare. So if anything, we could say that there should not be a special class of weapons only allowed for the federal government to be used in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Coast Guard, but that all those weapons should be available for purchase by the average citizen if we're really going to honor the Second Amendment. Our president is known for making a statement that the Second Amendment was never always inclusive. You couldn't buy a cannon when the Second Amendment was passed. It's a total lie. Anybody could own a cannon. Anybody could build a cannon because it's not like there were cannon shops at the end of the street. People would craft their own and people did have their own cannons. There's people who still have their own cannon. I know people who do reenactments and those people who do reenactments own their own cannons and they make their own cannonballs and they fire their cannons. Most of them just fire blanks because they're just trying to make it go boom for a reenactment. But they do occasionally actually load it and make it really do its thing because it's fun. (laughs) It's just fun. Let's blow something up. (laughs) Preferably not another person. Therefore, looking at the Second Amendment, I want it to be very clear to you that the Second Amendment is not about a lot of what you hear in the news. The Second Amendment is about the average American citizen having access to owning and being able to use, which means you have to be able to set it off, you need to have ammunition, any weapon of war, so that the state government could call upon you to help defend the country as a whole or the state in case of an invasion, or in case the federal government started acting all wackadoodle, which some might say they are. With the overstep of some of the laws that they created because of 9-11, the federal government has gotten more and more and more powerful and not necessarily in the best way. Now, I know there there has always been, and there are now, a lot of people who want the federal government to be big and strong. And I wrote a post on that, maybe I'll revive it, called Big G, Little G, What Begins with G? The question that I posed was, is government your God or is God your God? Is Jesus Lord of your life Or is the federal government or the state government in charge of everything in your life? So when we look at the Second Amendment and we look at these situations, it's very clear that normal, healthy, average citizens have the right to keep and bear weapons of war. 
That is how it is was written in the Federalist Papers, weapons of war. To prevent that would be to violate the Second Amendment. So what is our response? How do we respond to, in particular, school shootings? I'm glad you asked. As believers, as those of us who live brightly, we need to be knowledgeable. We need to understand. And there are several companies out there that were developed as a result of both the postal shootings and Columbine. One of the groups is called Faster. Another group is called Alice. And they have these catchy names because they're trying to say a lot in a short word. It's an acronym. I'm not sure what FASTER actually stands for, but I know that the FASTER is a response to an active shooter situation. ALICE stands for Alert, Lockdown, Inform, Counter, Evacuate. So you alert the authorities, you lock down initially, you inform the people in your area, you either counterattack or evacuate, and it's all dependent on where you're at and what's going on. FASTER is very similar. It is a plan. Just like when the child ran into the street, the father scooped him up, brought him back into the yard and said, okay, you don't follow the ball into the street. Well, as a three-year-old, it doesn't sink in as far as the significance goes to why shouldn't I go in the street? So the parent has to prepare and plan for the inevitability that the child may once again run into the street because they're trying to chase the ball and the ball is in play. And if I get the ball, then I get to be the next one to play it. So what do parents do? Well, parents put up fences, parents move the play to the backyard, or parents move the play with balls to the backyard. And so you can play in the front yard, but you're only allowed to, I don't know, do hopscotch on the sidewalk or jump rope, or ride your bike on the sidewalk. You're not allowed to play with the ball. The ball has to stay in the backyard. Parents come up with all kinds of different ways to deal with situations to protect their children, often in response to their children doing something dangerous, or hearing of some other child who did something dangerous and got hurt. So parents will create a plan, a process to protect their children and to keep them from hurting themselves. If we look at schools since 1999 in Columbine, very little has changed. Some things have changed in some areas and some things have not changed in others. And there's always that idea that it's not going to happen here. It's not going to be in our hometown which is exactly what a small city in rural Ohio thought, but they had prepared anyway. When they prepared, they went through the Alice training. West Liberty Salem School District in Ohio. And they had a shooter. They had an active shooter. And by the time the superintendent was notified, it was done. The beauty was they had prepared with Alice the active shooting preparation program. And because not only did the teachers have a plan, but they had also brought the students in on the planning. 
So they had sessions with their classes and said, okay, this is how we're going to respond. And these are our options. This is when you need to lock down. This is when you need to evacuate. If you can evacuate, this is where you go, or this is how you go, or this is, you know, and it created less stress and less anxiety because they had a plan in place. And because of that, although two students got shot, both of them lived, the perpetrator was arrested. He was actually tackled by some teachers and held in place until the police arrived to take him. And that was the extent of it. It was very controlled and contained. Most of the students evacuated the building before the second shot was gone. They were already moving because they could tell what part of the building the shooter was at was not the same part of the building they were at so they could get out of the building and just leave. No targets makes it very hard for somebody to shoot you if you're not a target. If you're not in the building, that makes you safe. After Columbine, one of the biggest things was lockdown, just stay where you are, which as a gun owner, I thought that's about stupid. That's almost making you the barrel of the fish for the shooter to get to you. Now, 20 years later, some schools are still lockdown only. And we have seen that the police don't always come right in. Frankly, the police are not the first people there. The students, the teachers, they're the first ones there. And yes, I'm going to talk about arming teachers because there are, there are several myths about some of the things that can be done. But if we want to prevent school shootings, we need to plan, we need to prepare, and we need to be wise. Now, should every teacher carry a gun? No, we shouldn't require a teacher to carry a gun but we shouldn't prohibit a teacher from carrying a gun either. There are many teachers who have guns and are very proficient with them. There are many teachers who already have concealed carry permits, which means they've been through training to use the gun in the situation where their life is threatened by someone else with a gun. But unfortunately, many states and many laws have created these, what they call safe zones. And a safe zone is a place where a law-abiding citizen is not allowed to bring a gun. What does a safe zone look like to somebody who wants to kill someone, somebody who's mad? A safe zone looks like a pretty safe target because it's going to be a lot harder for them to shoot me if I'm the only one with a gun since I'm the criminal. It doesn't make any sense. A little bit of thought would tell you If you want to protect the students in the schools, you make it a harder target. One of the things about a local school has done in my area is they've created a single entry point that has two sets of doors. Yes, there are lots of doors around the perimeter of the building for kids to get out. If there's a tornado, a fire, a active shooter. If you need to get out of the building, there's lots of places to get out. The problem is, there's only one place to get in. Now, teachers have a a key card that can get into their building, their door near their building, their rooms, and those doors all automatically lock. Now, it's not cheap. If you only have, if you don't have locks on all the other outside doors, you have to put a lock on all those doors that locks immediately as soon as it closes. 
And then you would have to build a probably a larger main entrance if you don't have a large main entrance, although most schools do. And then you would create a buffer area. If I wanted to go into the school, there was a button on the outdoor outside in the rain. You push the button and they say, who are you here for? Because that button goes directly into the office where they have a camera and they see who I am. And I say, oh, I'm here to pick up my daughter. And I have to give her the name and they're like, okay. They let me in to the first doors and then they can lock the second door if they need to because there is a, a table right inside where you have to check in and at that table is a security guard. So there's a security guard and usually another teacher that helps check people in. Now this checks people, students in who are late because they had a doctor's appointment or have to leave because of a doctor's appointment or me if I want to just go drop off a book for my child. Say they forgot their science book. So I'm bringing the book up to school. They need it. Often I will just leave the book at that desk and they'll call my, my child down to get it after I leave. There's very little need for me as a parent or adult to walk around the school. Rarely do you pass that point. Now, if I had a parent-teacher conference or different things, there's reasons. But I don't need to walk around the school any day, every day, all the time, right? So they prevent that by having one entry point, secure doors, all the outside doors automatically lock, and then there's a security guard and another adult monitoring that door, physically watching that door. Now, all teachers have a period of time when they have to do the hall monitoring or whatever. It's just one of those places where they have to serve. That might cost a little money, but it's a pretty easy fix. Now, granted, I know that one of these last shooters, there was a back door, the teacher went out, had a cigarette, came back in, the door didn't lock properly. That was tragic. The way you fix that is you, you test the doors regularly. You have the janitors or the security guard check the doors regularly to make sure that they're locking if they close on their own power. In Ohio, the safety of the school was left up to the school district. Different school districts did different things. And that included that they could allow teachers to be armed. And the school district just worked with the county sheriff's department as to training and protocol as to how to respond to certain events that might happen. And then somebody decided that they needed to pass another law that required teachers to have 740 hours of training. Basically, they had to be a police officer. They had to go through full police officer training to carry a gun. Now, there were a lot of schools in Ohio that already had teachers that were carrying. And all of a sudden, the state passed this law that said, oh, by the way, now you have to have all this training. And they're like, what do we do now? Well, that pulled all the guns out of all the schools. Now, thankfully, nothing happened during that window of craziness, and they have changed the law again to require specified training that is actually paid for by the state. The state is going to pay for the training, and I'm sure they're going to do it through the sheriff's departments and different things, but they're going to standardize it so that all the teachers that carry in Ohio are trained in a similar format and a similar plan. Not that it really matters as long as they're trained by law enforcement or somebody that they can approve. So you've got single access. You've got teachers who are voluntarily willing and trained to carry a gun 
But then you also have these programs like Alice or Faster. I think it's Faster Saves Lives and then Alice Training, which are both designed to deal with active shooters and terrorist type events. Now, they could be active shooters. They could be somebody trying to bomb the school or take them as hostages or various things. But they all kind of fall under that same preparation and planning. Now, this sounds a lot more like what a parent would do when we notice a child is doing something that could really cause them harm. Wise parents give their kids bike helmets and tell them they have to wear them. Wise parents make their children wear seatbelts, whether they're driving with the parent or with someone else. And they'll tell the other person, my daughter, make sure they wear their seatbelts. It's like, oh, we're on it. (laughs) If I were to protect my home, which I do, I make sure my doors are locked. I make sure my gun is loaded and it's controlled. It's not in a place where any toddler could get a hold of it, that kind of thing. And I make a plan. I live in an area where we get tornadoes and we have a tornado plan. We have a fire plan. If there's a fire and we have to leave the house, you go to this tree two doors down and we'll meet you at that tree. You go to that tree and you wait. If you're the first person there, you wait. If you're, you know, if you come in and there's somebody else there, the two of you, you wait. I have a gaggle of kids, so we had a lot. Now we we only have one, but at home, but we still plan. You know, there's this saying, and I can't remember how it goes, but it's something about piss poor planning is is bad. <laughs> it doesn't end, it's bad. It's, it's the failure to plan is a plan to fail. And without planning, without actually doing things to harden our schools, to make them a harder target, then we're not really protecting the children. Criminals will get guns. Criminals will find ways to hurt other people. Preparation and planning decreases anxiety, adrenaline, and freakouts because you have a plan. In Ohio, our school districts, every last one of them, has a tornado drill every month from March till school lets out. And they have one in September, just in case there's one before winter hits. Now, not many schools are hit with tornadoes. But just in case, they plan, they prepare. And because the students go through the planning, they know what to expect if it happens. Same thing for fire drills. They do a fire drill every month in every school in the state of Ohio. Every month, the alarms go off, the students line up and go outside, the teachers take attendance, they go to a designated area, they wait till they get the all clear, and then they all go back in and resume their class. If there was a real fire, they would know what to do, they wouldn't freak out, they had planned for it. To talk about taking guns away from law-abiding citizens and not deal with planning and preparing as a school, we're not going to solve this problem. Now, that is the beauty and trouble sometimes of the United States. In most states, the schools are locally controlled. So you need to get a hold of your local school district and find out what their plan is. Find out how they prepare and ask them if they have considered a program like Faster or Alice. 
that can actually prepare the students just like they do for fire or tornado or hurricane or earthquake, whatever you have, wherever you are. If we can prepare for a natural disaster, after we have seen one of these shootings, we should be able to prepare so that they never happen again. Criminals will find ways to be criminals. In England, you now have to show your ID and go through a check to buy, wait for it, a chef's knife. Because England took away everyone's guns years ago. So criminals kill people with knives and hammers. In the United States, hammers are used to kill people. We can't eliminate it. Evil is in the world but we can be a bright light and we can help ease the adrenaline, lower that down, decrease the temperature. We can ease the fear by being the love of God, being Christ's hands and feet and ease the trauma by preventing it and preparing. We need to share our bright light with those around us, with the world. Share our wisdom and our willingness to be prepared by preparing a plan to respond so we can stop reacting. Share your bright light. Step into the gap. See the plan. Evaluate the plan. And if there is no plan, help make a plan. Because again, if we don't plan, if we don't prepare, this is going to continue to happen. As incidences like school shootings happen, Bureaucrats in Washington are going to be forced to do something. It's probably going to be something that's not going to be the best thing for the United States Republic, our constitutional republic. Evil is in the world, right? We've established this fact. And if you have defined what you believe in, either you believe in God, that God created the heavens and the earth, and thereby also created all humans you also know that evil is in the world. Now, you cannot believe in God and still believe in evil. It's pretty evident. Currently, we've been dealing with the government response to the Uvalde school shooting. This is June of 2022. And unfortunately, we have not done enough to harden our schools. Now, we talked about in this podcast, making schools a harder target. In fact, they have done some really great things. The Sandy Hook School that had a school shooting in 2012, I believe, has been completely rebuilt with a lot of the things that I talked about. They also included things like cameras, go figure. And what I'm assuming are some safe rooms, some rooms that are really hard to penetrate in places where people can go when they need to get away from a dangerous situation. But just recently, hot off the presses, is this Bipartisan Safer Communities Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2022. Basically, this is addressed to the Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary of Education, the Attorney General, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services. That There's been a lot of thunderstorm Republicans who are mad at Republicans and 
comments being made on the internet. So I took a quick look at this this morning. I had this podcast prepared and I took a few minutes before I actually published it so I could review this and give you the highlights because you're gonna hear a lot on TV, which we talked about. Not everything you hear is necessarily accurate or complete. So I read through the full 80 page bill. Now there are a couple things I don't know exactly what they mean or what they refer to, but most of it is pretty clear. There is a anti-straw purchasing provision in there, which is basically for people who buy guns for someone else who should not be able to buy a gun on their own. Now you can buy a gun as a gift for someone that's not illegal, as long as that person is legally able to buy the gun on their own. This is parents in particular who might buy a gun for a student who is not mentally sound or is dealing with a situation like bullying or depression. And those things need to be addressed. And if they're not addressed, frankly, take your kid out of school and get them help somewhere else. This is a big school choice issue. Frankly, you should be able to choose what school your children go to. Okay, in this, there is $100 million a year to educate licensed armed dealers. Now, what that means is people who are legally allowed to buy and sell guns to understand how to use some of the new systems they're going to put in place. One of the things they're going to do is ramp up their criminal background check system to include records of either juveniles who've been arrested or imprisoned, sent to juvenile detention centers for violent crimes or have had severe mental health issues. One thing that I found, and I'm sorry, you're going to hear me rattling paper, um, that I found was very encouraging on page 50 of 80 pages, starting in line 20, it specifically says nothing in this bill creates or affirms a federal registry of firearms, firearm owners, or firearm transactions. That should be very encouraging to those of us who believe that that information, once codified and once collected, will be used against us. So they explicitly say they cannot keep a record of these things. They cannot create any type of registry. The next thing it talks about is domestic violence. And it kind of clarifies when a domestic violence offender can, if ever, get off the domestic violence registry. There is a lot in the Brady Bill that puts people that perpetrate domestic violence into a no-buy position. This codifies that you have to be five years past the completion of your sentence and not subsequently charged before you can purchase a gun and thereby be a legal gun owner. Now, there's a change in there, and I'm not exactly sure what the clarity is, but it says, unless that person, the victim, is a spouse, has a shared child, is a family member, is a a guardian of the victim or the victim of a guardian, that kind of thing. Those kind of relationships have a different caveat, and it wasn't really detailed here, so I'm assuming it's detailed somewhere else. I didn't get to that. One thing I noticed is there is a federal clearinghouse, which is based on school safety education-based policies. It's called schoolsafety.gov. 
it's a pretty good website. There's a lot of information on there. And of course, a lot of it is locked. You have to be the right kind of person to access the right information. I'm okay with that. In the process, though, I looked at the rebuilding of Sandy Hook, which I already mentioned. Really cool. The reason I looked at that was because on this schoolsafety.gov, there's an article by a group of architects who have taken it upon themselves to use their skills and talents to create some good school planning to build a school that is safe and hard to access. If you want to look on YouTube, you can find a video on the rebuilding of Sandy Hook. Very interesting, very cool videos. Check them out. The problem I had was some of the articles on this website were not dated and a lot of them were older. The most recent one I found, I think, was 2020. Okay, there wasn't a lot of school going on, but still. There's a link for Tripwire, which is a technical resource for incident prevention. They're talking about bombs and IEDs and that kind of thing. But what I would like to see is something similar for what I call a sync report. And I came up with that this morning. It's not necessarily very clever, but I like it. A sync report. A successful intervention of nefarious conduct. Just a month ago, there was a nefarious activity going on outside of school. A resource officer, somebody went out and approached the person. The person aimed a gun at them. They shot the person dead. The person never got into the school because it was a successful intervention of nefarious conduct. Sync. And if we had a sync report, you know, we can learn from the failures, but we can also learn from the successes. And we're not just going to talk talk. Let's talk action. I think that's a good plan. So if we're going to have schoolsafety.gov, I think we should add to that a sync report. Try to get through this quickly. Okay, the next several pages of sections was about the money and where are they going to spend the money? And that is important. So there is um, Title I, which is all goes to the Department of Justice. And there's $100 million for NICS, which is the National Incident Criminal Background Check System. And that $100 million is for salaries and expenses for all the changes that they're going to make. So they gave them $100 million to hire some extra people, build some new websites, some new infrastructure, so that they can get this new information added and uploaded. Because that has been one of the problems, right? Some of the people have not been reported to the NICS or reported inappropriately. So that's a good thing. Then they gave $1.4 billion to state and local law enforcement to the tune of $280 million a year. And this is to keep this accurate. We want the National Instant Criminal Background Check System to be accurate, to be useful, to be user-friendly, and to be instant. Therefore, when someone is convicted of a crime that would put them on this list saying you can't own a gun, that that information is uploaded into the NICS database. Once you have satisfied the terms of your your incarceration or whatever, let's say you serve two years, you have three years of probation, so that's five years, and then you have like a four-year waiting period because they have to make sure you don't re-violate the laws, then you get pulled off the list or whatever. So those things need to be maintained. So again, not necessarily a bad thing. That's $280 million a year for the years 2022 through 2026. I'm okay with that. Frankly, I would rather we spent money here in our country than a lot of other countries. Then they have the Department of Justice get $750 million 
It is $200 million for Stop School Violence Act of 2018. And STOP are all capitals, so it stands for something. I'm not exactly sure what else in that, but $200 million to increase criminal and mental health records into NICS. So there's a little more uh, National Incident Criminal Background Check System money. $250 million to for Community Violence Intervention and Prevention Initiative. I'm not exactly sure what all that is, but it sounds okay, right? Community Violence Intervention and Prevention Initiative. Might be a bunch of talking heads. Might be a lot of meetings. I don't know. Then there's $100 million or $20 million a year additionally for this Stop School Violence Act of 2018, and that's $20 million a year for 22 through 26. And I ran into that a lot. A lot of this ends in 2026. So there is a sunset clause, meaning that a lot of this will end unless they renew it. Now we know they love to renew things, thus the Patriot Act is still around. I should have compressed all the numbers for you, but about 1.5 billion is going to the Department of Health and Human Services, and some of it is for program support. There's a 40 million for a National Child Traumatic Stress Network, mental health awareness training, and public health and human services training. Um, there's some money for the suicide and prevention hotline, and there's some some money for primary care training, which is probably for physicians and pediatric mental health care. There's a lot of money in there for health and human services. They also increase Medicaid funding for telehealth and for schools. Now, this is this is something I'm curious of. You know, when I went to school, we had to go in. I don't know if it was once a year or every couple of years. And they tested our eyesight and they, well, that was where we got our polio vaccine was at school. Of course, I went to a Catholic school. So I'm not sure how schools work these days <laughs> as far as that goes. I don't remember my kids getting vaccines at school. We pretty much did it at the doctor's office. <laughs> Why am I laughing? I don't know. Um, so there's this telehealth money and there's this early and periodic screening, diagnostic and treatment money. I'm not exactly sure what all that is. Are they screening, diagnosing and treating in schools? I hope not. Now, I know that there is some diagnostic stuff done. There's some screening stuff done with respect to disabilities. I have a disabled daughter who's, well, divergently abled or differently abled, however you want to put it, and determining what her learning abilities were and what her learning ability limitations were and how to best educate her. A lot of that was done in the school. Now, she did see a psychologist at one point, but there was not a lot done outside of the school. I'm concerned that mental health is going to be diagnosed in the school. That kind of just mm, makes me go, hmm. I'm not exactly sure how this is all going to play out. I'm not exactly sure how all this is going to be separated or used, but that's $8 million a year starting in 2022. And then there's 50 million grants to states for schools to implement, enhance, and expand school-based health centers. So again, I don't know if this is school-based healthcare, or mental healthcare. I don't necessarily want school teachers or even school counselors to be doing mental health work. We have a mental health issue. As a Christian, that is a big spiritual issue. 
and we can try and solve it from the flesh as a human, from science, but so much of it is spiritual. To me, you cannot separate the spiritual side because when you get into the mental, the thought, the creativity, all of that is a spiritual gift. All of that is part of your soul and your soul, which I'm going to talk about in the next podcast, can be either go toward the physical and become animalistic, which is probably where we get a lot of this mental health issue, or it can go toward the spiritual and can be greater wisdom, greater knowledge, greater creativity. So we're not going to get into all that, but I just don't want schools doing the mental health work. That just concerns me. But it's all going to be in how your school or how your state spends this money because the federal government's not going to spend it. They're just doling out the cash. They want to ensure children have access to comprehensive health care services, including children without a mental health or substance use disorder diagnosis. Well, who's going to see and say who needs comprehensive health care services? Okay, these are those gray areas where things can get a little icky. There's some money in that, all of that, but really there's not a ton of money there. When I look at some of the other places where there's money, there's not a ton of money in that. There's $31 million spread out from 2023 to 2027 to kind of clean up the juvenile records and disqualify people. That creates the three to 10 day waiting period for people under 21 This is money for the National Instant Criminal Background Check System for as far as juvenile records go, and then some oversight annual reports to show what was outdated, what is erroneous, what has expired, keeping those records accurate. Another good point here is state crisis intervention courts. Now, we have a a drug court in my county where I live. It has been very effective in keeping people who have substance abuse issues out of jail. Because if you're dealing with alcoholism or an addiction to narcotics, sitting in jail isn't really going to help you. And from what I understand, once you get beyond maybe the county jail, access to that stuff is not necessarily prohibited. I know people, I've heard stories of people who went to jail as a drug addict who continued their addiction while in jail. So, but it also includes a mental health court, veterans court, which is probably because of the suicide and some of the issues that our veterans have. I'm not sure why we need a special one, but okay. And then extreme risk protection orders. These are your red flag laws. You hear it called red flag, but it's extreme risk protection order. Okay. So when you hear those terms, you're going to hear red flag on one side and you're going to hear, oh, it's an extreme risk protection order. Uh, that's a red flag. Now, this is another point. This is on page 33 to 35. I found this very encouraging. It's very clear in this bill. They require pre-deprivation and post-deprivation due process. And they specifically state the Bill of Rights, the Fifth Amendment, the 14th Amendment. They say that none of these extreme risk protection orders can be predicated on evidence that is unsworn, unaffirmed, irrelevant, hearsay, unreliable, vague, speculative, lacking a foundation. All of those evidences, they they actually created a higher bar of evidence for these extreme risk prevention orders, for these red flag orders to go through. 
and there's a built-in penalty for abusing the program. These are good things. These are things that make me go, okay, they have thought this through, and the Republicans that have signed on to this have done some work to protect the would-be innocent people who are getting it stuck in this. Somebody's going to get stuck in this. There's, there's no, no doubt about it. But a lot of these things are, are good things on paper, and they're good things if they're executed properly. Good things become bad things when they're not executed properly, and that's what we run into. So I like these crisis intervention courts. The red flags, the extreme risk protection orders really do fall under the Mental Health Act, and there is a little discussion in the bill about the Mental Health Act. A lot of this is already covered there. But this does give money to help set up some of these specialty courts, which I think is important. The drug courts in our area have done a great job. And the Republican judge who started it now has a couple Democrat judges who also want to do this because it has been so successful. It's a lot of work. She has a lot of follow through and she does a lot of work to keep these um, drug offenders accountable But in the public, you know, they're going to work, they're going to AA or whatever their program is, they're working their program, they're working their job, and they're working through their issues that got them addicted to the substance in the first place. If that can be replicated for suicide or mental health issues or other things, I'm all for it. These things sound really good and I'm for them, but these are state issues. All of this bill is a state issue. This doesn't discount the fact that on the federal level, the right to own and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now we can give money to help with drug courts. That's not really a gun issue. So don't call it a gun issue. I'm really frustrated about this because this is what politicians do. They dress them up as something that they shouldn't be and they do things that they shouldn't do. Every state is different and every state has to plan what works for the state. They tried to pass red flag laws in Ohio and they failed. However, as I mentioned, Ohio does have drug courts and all kinds of programs and and access to all kinds of supports that other states do not offer. That's not Ohio's fault and it shouldn't be done at the federal level. Uh, Let's go look at what else is in this bill. Now, the last department is the Department of Education, and they got uh, $1,050,000,000. Most of that is for the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Again, I don't know exactly what that is or what that means. Basically, it's $200 million a year for mental health services grants and mental health services professional demonstration grants. I'm not sure why that's not professional development grants, but it's professional demonstration grants. So I don't know if you have to demonstrate that you know what you learn. (laughs) Mm, That's weird. And then there's 50 million for part B of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. So this is kind of where this mental health that they were talking about earlier in the bill, screening and prevention, health centers. It sounds like it's all in schools. That, again, is a little weird to me. All in all, I added it up. If I'm adding correctly, it's just shy of $5 billion. I'll have to look at the final number and see if I got my numbers right or not. But I was doing it quickly because I want to get this into this podcast before I published it. So that is what is in the bill. 
this bipartisan Safer Communities Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2022, just shy of $5 billion. It does have special language specifically stating this is not about making a registry of any firearms. So guns are not registered. Firearm purchases are not registered. Firearm transfers are not being registered. That's very explicit in the bill. With these emergency protection, red flag protection orders, there is explicit high bar evidentiary requirements. These are both very good things. These are good starting points. I'm not going to say they're going to be great. We have to try them. We have to see how they work. I'm all for protecting juvenile records. But when those juvenile records include things like killing the neighbor's cat and then killing their family dog and then being violent at school and you've got a mental health professional who's been trying to work with this child for years, maybe they shouldn't get a gun until they work through some of these other issues. Obviously, there's things going on there. There is money for that in this, which is good. Now, we can't legislate who gets that money, but I hope they don't legislate against who gets the money. Because if I'm a Christian and I want to use a Christian counselor, I should be able to use that money to go to the Christian counselor. A lot of this money goes through Medicaid. Medicaid has its own hoops to go through. Again, I'm going to say, this is a state issue. And most of this should be handled at the state level. The worst thing that the federal government always does is they take money out of your pocket, they take money out of my pocket, they send it to the federal government, they mix it all up in a big bucket, they, every department, every little person, every little thing takes a little piece out, and then they divvy it up to the states based on some algorithm. Let the states handle the state's issues. If you need a federal law that states juvenile mental health records need to be accessible to law enforcement, then pass that bill. Make that a law. The rest of this should all go to the states. If the states want to implement some of these ideas, which I strongly recommend, then they should do that at the state level where there is direct accountability with the voters. That is why we have a representative republic. This is not a democracy. A democracy is mob rule. A representative republic is you elect representatives to represent you, just like you hire a lawyer to represent you. The lawyer does a lot of negotiating, that does a lot of research, and puts together the best plan to defend you and protect you. That's what our representatives do. That is what our state representatives, our state government is supposed to be doing. The state should be screaming, this is not a federal issue. This is a state issue. But I hope you found this interesting and informative because understanding what this bill is and what it actually says versus what the talking heads on TV are saying, it's night and day. So I read through the bill. This is what's in the bill. I'll put a link on my homepage. I'm sorry to say it probably won't be today. I've got meetings tonight. I've got a lot to do this afternoon, but I wanted to get this in this morning so that you would have it because it's so timely. And I was having a lot of trouble getting this edited. I know now why. God was delaying me so I could get the actual written version of this framework they've been talking about for two weeks. Evil is in the world. 
We can react, which is instant self-preservation, but we must respond. The world needs us as Christians to respond. Let your light so shine that they will see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. You are the light of the world. So thanks for joining me. Again, if you found value in this, head over to ElaineCross.com, E-L-A-Y-N-E, Cross as in Jesus died on the cross, and make a donation. Whatever size suits you. Sign up for the email and see what I have in the store. Till next time.